I hope you enjoyed my absence. I'm back now. Both were fun for me. So we're doing this series called Faith's Response. A year ago, in Mar- well, in March of 2012, we were in 1 Corinthians. Anybody remember that? There's like nine people who were here then, right? Yeah, okay. So then the first part of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is talking to people who believe in Jesus, but they're eating each other alive with just dissension and anger at each other and factions and all that kind of stuff. And then one of the metaphors that he uses for what the body of Christ should be, when we have, when we have Christ uniting us, we should be like, we should be knitted together. And so while I was preaching those four sermons, there was somebody over there knitting in a rocking chair because we thought that was super hip. And when we were done, it all came together in this blanket, which the fun thing about this was um, we could save money by turning the heat off in Lisa's office, and she could just wear this during the winter. Um, but it was, it was meant to represent, this is what we're supposed to be in Christ. We're, we're supposed to be woven together. We're supposed to have unity with each other, right? Now, that made me think about something else. Who did this art and craft when they were a kid? Or, you know, as a grown-up, right? Most of us, right? If you didn't do it, I don't know what to tell you. Um, it's not exactly high-level weaving, right? But it does teach two of the most fundamental ideas of weaving. One, which should be apparent, there has to be something to weave. But the second is, you have to, the weaving, that whatever you're going to weave, has to go in at least two directions, or you can't weave anything, right? You've got to have one going one way, and another going the other way, and they crisscross with each other, and that's how you get a fabric. That's how you get a tapestry, Right? So the, one of the most fundamental ideas of weaving is that you've got something going this way and you've got something going this way and when you put it all together you can actually knit something together, you can weave something out, you can have a tapestry. And all through the tapestry of the message of the Bible, there are two themes constantly, constantly, constantly running through it. One is the dynamic of the gospel. The gospel is the good message, the good news. One is that dynamic. What is it? What is the news? How does it function? And the second is the who of the good news. Who is it about? The dynamic is the dynamic of promise, the promise of redemption, trusting in that promise, and then God doing the saving. Right? God gives a promise. He says something's going to happen. That thing is always gracious. In the Christian church, we use the word grace all the time. And what that word means is it's unearned. That is, that whoever receives it has no claim on it. Okay? That's what grace is. Grace is when something is received, and the person who receives it has no claim on it. It's simply given. All right? And God's promise, what he gives, redemption and salvation, is always gracious. And it is always appropriate in the same way. You all, everybody who was ever saved, redeemed by God, or anybody who ever had a relationship with God, always came in the exact same way, by believing and trusting God's promise that was always gracious. God would make a promise. That promise was always gracious, and that person had to trust it. The promise, but namely and mainly the promise giver, God. That's the dynamic of the gospel. But there's the second, there's the cross fabric, and the cross fabric is the who of the promise, the who of the grace, and the who of the object of faith. When God gives a promise of redemption, who is, what is that promise? And that promise is a who. It's Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the promise. God promised redemption. He promised that we would be saved. How can we be saved when our our problem is a broken relationship with God? How does God redeem a broken relationship with him that is based on us being morally blameworthy? What's necessary is human beings have to be justified or made righteous. But that righteousness has to be gracious. It has to be received because we're not going to have a righteousness that we have any claim on. And God did it through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the graciousness of it. And the dynamic of receiving it is exactly the same. Faith. You trust. You believe God. You believe that God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, can justify you. Can graciously give you what you need to belong to God, be part of his kingdom, to know him, to exist with him forever. Those two cross-woven fabrics run all the way through the Bible. Here's why this is important. A few years ago, well, several years ago now, there was a book written called The Shack. 
which I read like the first 50 pages of, but a lot of people read and liked. I, I listened to an interview with him at Fuller Seminary, the guy who wrote it, William Young or something like that. And um, he said, here's why I wrote this book. He said, because I have kids. And here's what I, I do. I watch my kids go to church every week, right? I mean, the most you can go to church is every week. Most people don't go that often, right? But you come to church and what do you get? And he said, what you get is you get this puzzle piece. And you have this little box, and you come to church, and you get the puzzle piece, and you put the puzzle piece in your box. And you go enough times, and you start thinking, oh, maybe some of these puzzle pieces will fit together. And so you spread them out on your mental table, and you try to figure out how they all go together. But nobody's actually ever given you the box top. And so there's all these Christians in churches in all kinds of places hearing all these morally helpful sermons of five ways you can improve your marriage and six ways to think yourself to wealth and nine ways that you can be more healthy and Jesus can help you lose weight and five, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like five secrets for raising your children and four ways to get a promotion that Jesus wants you to have. And you get, you listen to all these sort of moralistic self-help kind of sermons that are, that are, that are actually true, most of them. The content of them is actually true. In that there are ways to live healthier and have better relationships and all that kind of stuff. But they're all at ground level. There's no 20,000 feet of how this all relates back to God and God's glory and who God is and how God created all things and has a purpose of redemption and all that kind of stuff. And if we—you don't understand the two cross-weaving fabrics of the whole Bible, you just can't put it together. You just have all these puzzle pieces, and you're trying to put them together, and you're trying to fit them in where they don't go, and you, you think it's a mountain, and it's, like it's the side of a building, and it's really the side of a mountain, and it's extremely confusing. But if you look at, for example, the psalm series that we're going through, it's all right there. So what I want to do this morning is I want to put some of that together for us. Does that make sense? I really need to start this timer, or we're going to be in big trouble. Sorry. I've already been going 27 minutes, right? Okay. Um, so far, we've done Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 13, Psalm 19, Psalm 51, and Lloyd did Psalm 71 last week in my absence. Is that right? We did have church last week? Okay, good. So, think about what we learned through those. If you haven't been here, they're all on the website. You can listen to them if they sound interesting at all. Um, but Psalm 1, it was about blessedness, blessings and curses, right? It was about blessed is a person who walks, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but meditates on the, on God's law day and night. Like, and it talks about what it looks like to embrace a path, a way of walking away from God, and a way of curse, and, and a way of blessing. And there's blessing, and there's curse, and he's like, listen, if you trust God and you walk with him, you'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that bears fruit in a season, its leaves never wither, and it's wonderful. And it's not stolen blessing. It's not like I'm going to be blessed by taking from you. It's not zero-sum blessing. It's, it's like I, God blesses you. You bless other people. They, it's like God's blessing lifts up and redeems and encourages and spreads out, and it's generous. Right? It's, it's not a stingy blessing. And then what was he doing in Psalm 2? Oops, that's the wrong button. What was he doing in Psalm 2? Remember Psalm 2? I've installed my king in Zion on my holy hill. All the nations will rage. They'll fight against it. They'll pretend he's not king. They'll fight against the king. They'll rage against the king. And what does God do in response to everybody who's fighting against his one king? It says he laughs at them. He, he, if, it says he scoffs at them. And that when the time is appropriate, his, his wrath will flare up in a moment. But you know what it says right at the end of the psalm? The redemptive ending, the ending of faith. It says, he says, But blessed are all who take, remember the word? Refuge in him. That's not a word that means very much to us, is it? When was the last time, like, plundering barbarians were coming through Madison, and we're like, where are we gonna go? They're gonna kill us! Like, not recently, right? But listen, I'll tell you what. Do you know, who, who's been to England? Right? I've been, but I didn't get to. Who got to do the countryside? Okay, like four people, okay? Um, so, what do you go see? Right? Castles, right? In Italy, you go see churches, and in England, you go see castles. Now, why is that? Why do you see castles in England and churches in Italy? Well, because Rome's in Italy, right? But in England, the reason you see castles is this is why. Because somewhere in the 12, 1300s, a Viking ship showed up in England, and they decided to raid a monastery, and that monastery happened to have a bunch of gold and silver in it. And they took it back to wherever it is they came from, and they were like, Dude, we need to go there a lot and pillage. And for a few hundred years, people came from the Norway-Swedenish area in boats, 
And England is full of rivers. Like the whole, the whole island has these rivers going through it. And so they just sail up these rivers and just plunder. And the English people are like, what are we going to do? Here's what they did. They built castles. Because you can lose your house, you can lose your livestock, you can lose your crops. You can, you, you can stand to lose a lot. But you just as soon be alive. And so they built castles all over England because they had to be close enough so that when you're hoeing and you look out to the river and you see sails and the front of the boat looks something like this, <laughs> you can drop your hoe and you can run and get some stuff and get in the castle before they get there and you can outlast them because a castle is 5,000 times stronger than you. And think about the dynamic. The safety that you receive is gracious because you are not that strong. Your strength is not in you. It is merely in the refuge. Your strength is equal to the strength of the refuge. See the point? And so there's, in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2, there's the cross fabric. The dynamic of the gospel and the person of the gospel. And then the next four psalms are, well, how do you do it? Right? Psalm 13 is, how long, O Lord? It's like you're not here. Everything's going wrong. I'm doubting you. I don't know what to do. And, and what, what's the psalm, what's the songwriter's answer at the, at the end? It's this assumption that I'm so confused. I, like, yes, I'm having these doubts, but I realize I need to doubt my doubts. I'm psychologically broken at this moment. I don't see the world the way it is. I the way I see it wants to accuse you, but what, here's what I know. I know that in the past, you have been good to me. I know that in the future, my heart is going to sing in you, and right now, I am going to choose to trust you in the middle of this, right? They, hear, they recognize you need, to, you need to set the broken bone of pain, and you need, to, you, need to, you need to go in that direction. You need to trust the gospel. You need to believe the one who it's about. Psalm 19 was about the heavens declare the glory of God. The word of God is sure and true. It's more precious than gold. It's sweeter than honey. And how does, so how does he end the psalm? Right? David's writing and he gets to this point and he says, therefore I realize, now he doesn't say it quite this way, but he says, I realize the darkness isn't in you. The darkness is in me. And so he ends with these lines. He says, forgive my hidden faults. Who can discern his, his inner faults? Please forgive me of them. He says, what I realize is that there's darkness in me I don't even see. I don't even see it. I don't even understand it. And I can't even name it to repent and say I'm wrong. All I can do is say, God, you see it. Please forgive me of it. And then he says, please also save me from willful sins. Meaning, I'm the kind of person that wants to do things that I know are just ugly, false, wicked, untrue. And I know those things will enslave me. And will you save me from them? Right? And then in Psalm 51, David's writing, and he's, he's sinned, and he's, he says, what I realize is that what you want, God, the one thing that you will never say, I don't want this. Right? That's a pretty good thing to know, right? If there was something that whenever it was present, God would never say, I don't want this. David says that. He says, this is what you want, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise, right? God will never despise or turn away from or not accept. He will always accept. He will always turn towards. He will always embrace. He will always bring in. He will always save. He will always deliver. He will always express and pour out love on any heart that will be broken in the sense that it is contrite. It is willing to say, I'm wrong. To say that Christian spirituality ultimately is simply this. All of life is repentance. To quote Martin Luther. If you look at Psalms 13, 19, 51, and 71, all of those are simply different specific applications of trusting the promise and trusting the God of that promise. They're all gospel songs, and they were written before Jesus. How could gospel songs be written before Jesus? Because the dynamic in the one being trusted hasn't changed. 
We know more now the specifics of how the king saves. We know more now. But the dynamic in the person hasn't ever changed. And so gospel Jesus songs could be written a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. So the question to ask, and so, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times I want to really focus my sermons on the truth because I believe that truth persuades and transforms. So instead of me getting down to the nitty-gritty and saying, now do this, don't do that, I want to be up here and say, here's what's true, here's what's true about God, because I believe if you're persuaded of that truth, you'll naturally apply it in a thousand different ways. But every once in a while, it's good to say, okay, given that those truths, do this, don't do that. Does that make sense? So how do you actually live out? That's, that's the question. How do you live out a life where all life is repentance? How do you live out a life of a broken and contrite heart, the one thing that you got, know God and will never turn away from? How do you, what do you do? And, and there's, a, there's a couple things that we need to recognize in order for that to happen. Do you remember this slide from my Psalm 1 sermon? Right? How many untrained dogs are in that line? Right? Rough guess. Zero. Right? There's no German shepherd on the planet that would sit in that line untrained. They were formed in their training to have a a disposition and a discipline other than their natural disposition, weren't they? And that's one of the reasons why, if you remember this, this sheet of paper, remember we handed this out? You can still get these in the office. High Point Church, our mission, vision, and plan. And there's like how we do church, and on the back of it is the personal stuff. The first two weeks of January, I think it was, I preached on this stuff. What does this mean for us? And at the bottom, it was, in what ways do I, is diversion taking me away from God? And in what ways do I need to embrace discipline to bring me toward God? That's ne- it was never designed to say, you know what, you need to earn your salvation. You need to show God you're serious. It's simply to recognize that we are not already what we are. We are always moving, and there is, a, there is a, an important recognition that, that who we want to become doesn't just happen if we have the right dream. It happens through applying actions it, it takes our values and our heart and our good intentions, and we have to then do them. And that produces the kind of character so that we can become the kind of person we believe we want to be. Okay. One of the biggest differences between the first movie in the Indiana Jones trilogy, I deny that there was ever a fourth Indiana Jones movie, and the, the first um, episodes four through six of the Star Wars trilogy is how they developed the main character. Now, in the first Indiana Jones movie, how much time was spent developing Indiana Jones into the character he would be for most of the movie? 37 seconds, right? If you ever watched the first Indiana Jones movie, here's what happens. You see the back of Indiana Jones, and I think Alfred Molina is the guy's name, like, before he was famous, is walking behind him, but he's like the guide. And you don't see Indiana Jones' face, and he, you know, he takes like a drink of water, and he looks at some stuff, and he looks up, and he's trying to find this thing. And then the, the, the person he's supposed to trust, his guide, starts pulling out his pistol to shoot him, right? And then what happens? It's the whip scene, right? Right? And then the guy runs off. And you're like, this guy's serious business. Like, he knew that his guy was going to shoot him, and he, like, was looking at his map and heard that behind him, and you don't even know that he's a history professor, you know? I wish I had a history professor like that, right? <laughs> and so immediately, what you find out at the very beginning of Indiana Jones is Indiana Jones is already Indiana Jones. Everything that happens for the rest of the three films, he's basically the same guy. Right? What happens in the first film is they're going to develop a romantic relationship. So they're not going to develop him as a character. They're going to develop the relationship. That's what's going to be developed. So they've got to put both people in whole, basically, and then build backstory. Now, in Star Wars, it's the opposite. Luke Skywalker in A New Hope is the most uncompelling, terrible protagonist ever in the history of film. It's awful. It's just, I mean, just, I mean, like, if you watched, if you watched Star Wars when you were a kid, you might be like, what? Go back and watch it again as a grown-up, okay? Just, I promise you, you watch it as a grown-up, and you'll be like, 
oh my gosh, he was the whiniest teenager, the most vacuous youth ever in the history of the world. I mean, he just, like, he just whines the whole first movie. There's nothing helpful except at the end, for some reason, he is able to blow up the Death Star because the Force is strong with this one. Right? It's because the Wookiee bails him out is what happens, right? In fact, it's so much so that they can't start the movie with him. If they had started Star Wars with Luke Skywalker looking at the two moons of Tatooine pensively in his little white smock, I mean, nobody would ever say that was a good movie, right? That's why they have to start the movie with Darth Vader, right? This has got an all-black, choking an unknown rebel, you know, like crushing his neck accidentally while he chokes them to get the rebel plans, right? Like... After that, whoever is in the next scene is the hero, even if it's Jar Jar Binks, okay? <laughs> that, they had to build it that way, because here, and here's why. Here's why. I like Star Wars movies. It's because they're going to spend three movies creating this character. And they need a vacuous idiot to start with to show development. Right? And what we need to recognize is... Um, everybody wishes that you could accept Jesus and be Indiana Jones. Okay, look, listen. I wish I was the spiritual Indiana Jones. I would love to, I would love to, if I, when I was young, to have accepted Jesus and been like a thing finding, running away from, like whipping. I would love to be that guy right off. But that's not how life is, and that's not how human beings function. Every minute you are becoming something. You're not this static thing. Like, human beings aren't toasters. That they just come out, toasters. And you are what you are, and that's all there is to it. There are things basically static about us, right? Like, you have human nature. Human nature, we all share human nature. That's just a fact. You can't get away from that. You are a human being. You can deny it all you want. It is what you are. There are some specifics about our gifts, our talents, our intelligences, our things like that. And those are things that are actually somewhat diverse among us. And you can't do all that much with some of those things. But who you are fundamentally spiritually has to do with your character, your loves, your intrinsic convictional values, your relationship to conscience. That's the core of who you are biblically. And that is changing all the time. The younger years are very formative. But listen, how many people do you know from ages 55 to 75 that turn into these sort of like angry curmudgeons that don't like anything? That happened. That happened. At some point, they got out of the game. They stopped existing in the present. They started wishing for the past. That tension continued to grow, and it made them frustrated and angry and surly and blah, blah, blah. Why is one 80-year-old angry and another 80-year-old hanging out with and talking to the new grad students? Why is that happening? It's because character formation was happening not just at 2 and not just at 12 and not just at 21. It was happening at 33 and 45 and 51 and 62 until you're dead. You are becoming and moving. And that's not to say that you're not—you have to become a Christian. You're, you're 1% a Christian now, and maybe you'll be 100% a Christian later on. That's not what I'm saying. This year in my garden, we grew eggplants for the first time. First time I ever grew eggplants. But I like baba ganoush, and my mom likes egg, eggplant sandwiches, so we, we try to grow some of these things. They're not that hard to grow. But here's the thing about it. The first sprout—is that an eggplant? Is that an eggplant plant? Right, it is, right? From the very first sprout, it's an eggplant plant. It's genetic identity. What it is, it's an eggplant plant. Eggplant plant, eggplant plant, right? But the purpose of that plant, what's that vitality for? It's for it to grow, to develop into a plant, to make those really pretty purple flowers, to draw on the bees, to create eggplants, and to make me some behind kicking baba ganesh. That's what it's for, right? It's wonderful. And, in some, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why the Christian, in the Bible, there's all these agricultural metaphors. It is a thing, but it's meant to grow. And all of our characters go through, have to go through development. And, you're, and you're, even if you, here's the, that's why you can never say, well, I've accomplished that character-wise. Everything you think you've accomplished character-wise is still breakable. People who 10 years ago were exactly the kind of person least likely to have an affair, 20 years later may very well not be that person anymore. 30 minutes later, they could be much less that person. These fortifications are built and they fall apart. It, it, they, they, they wax and they wane. That's why, we're, that's why we're always engaged in spiritual discipline. Because
because we're always seeking to become what we know Christ wants us to be. It looks a little, you can think of it this way. You have to have faith first. There has to be a new motivational structure in your heart because Christ is present. And you're trying to think things through the way he thinks them through. Value them the way he values them. See the truth. See the way. See the life the way he does. See beauty and ugliness the way he sees it. And to have this internal structure that I want to be like that. A convictional structure, a conscience structure that drives us towards what we believe is good and true and beautiful and worth pursuing. But listen— It's not enough to have those good intentions. You have to make yourself do them. You have to do it. You have to engage in behavioral disciplines. You can't just say, yeah, I really should. No, you shouldn't really should. You need to go do it. Or it can't happen. That's not how human beings are. We're not like... We're just—we're not other creatures. We're not elves or dwarfs. We're humans. And humans' characters, they wa- it waxes and it wanes. It forms and it deforms. It's always moving. It's not a toaster. And so therefore, we have to be every day escaping diversion and moving towards discipline. Spiritually, not in a legalistic way, not in a self-righteous way, not in some kind of earn-your-salvation religious way, but in a formational way. Because we want to become what Christ has already declared us to be. So this morning I want to go through the behavioral disciplines of that. If you believe the gospel already, what behavioral disciplines do you add to it practically so that you can get to a real redemptive formational change? How does that happen? And one of the things I think is really important to recognize is, because I have, there's seven of them I want to share. There could be 50, 55. Lloyd had six things last week, so I just had to beat him. Um, but he, here's the thing that I think people, you could be scared about, because if you're, you know, if you're new to church or whatever, you'd be like, okay, that's, I knew this was coming. I knew the preacher. He said about all that stuff about five points on this beginning, but now he's going to give us seven points. And it, it, it's, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back here every week, and I'm going to get some list of things in addition to what I already do that I have to do if I, God want, if I'm, if I really want to be right with God in some way. And so every week it's like five more things, and then it's seven more things, and then it's nine more things, and you multiply that by 52 weeks, and it's just, this is why people don't do religion, right? Is that fair? You can imagine people saying anything like that, right? And honestly, honestly, this is one of my problems with the five things to make your marriage better sermons, is I, I want to encourage people to go, preachers to go back to their last 60 sermons and, and write down all the things they told their people to do. And say, how are you doing, and is that crazy? But here's what I think. Of these seven things, I don't think, it, I don't think you have to do one more thing than you're already doing. I don't think what, what I'm going to tell you to do, if you're already in church today, could cost you as much as two hours a week in lifestyle transformation, plus the five minutes of prayer that I'm going to encourage you to do. So let's go through them. The first is, is that repentance is its own discipline. If all of life is repentance, if what we're doing spiritually is recognizing God is right and we are wrong, we're trusting the Savior and He's teaching us, if we're getting rid of our self-righteousness and our pride, if we're, then repentance is its own discipline. It's the first discipline. It, it's, it's required to be a Christian in the first place. It's the only thing required to be a Christian in the first place. And it is the first and never-ending discipline of every believer in Jesus. Repentance is its own discipline. And it goes something like this. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm an idiot. I don't know why I keep doing this. Please forgive me. If you want to know more about that, last week, or two weeks ago, I preached a whole sermon on that. So, um, go and listen to that sermon. It's only 97 minutes or something like that. Um, but I don't want to get into that now. But Psalm 51 is a great layout of what repentance really looks like. But repentance is its own discipline. You have to actually do it. The second is, um, is prayer and meditation. A few weeks ago, we were doing this, and we had somebody pray. And then on Monday mornings, we always Monday morning quarterback ourselves. So, like, there's this meeting where I get criticized, and we talk about worship and how it went, all this kind of stuff. And... 
one of the things that we said was like, wasn't it cool to pray in church? That was kind of interesting, wasn't it? We had like a worship service and we prayed. You know, and it was kind of a funny moment because we feel like all the stuff we do in worship is really worthwhile, but then, like, it's really easy to do a bunch of preaching and a bunch of singing and a bunch of announcements, and then, like, you actually realize you left and you didn't really pray. Like, a lot of the singing is kind of prayer because you're singing to God, so in that sense, you did, you know, 15, you know, 12 to 20 minutes of praying, but you never really, like, prayed in the traditional sense, right? But, um, you know, for a, a lot of the early years of my Christian life, I really struggled with this. I, I, I don't want to say it's all over, but I really struggled with the idea of prayer because um, I, I have a really difficult time with people who like praying. Like, I don't, do you know these people that are like, they're like the prayer warriors, you know? And they, they have the gift of intercession, and they just love to pray, and they just cannot understand. Like, they could have a prayer meeting, like, during the Packers playing Super Bowl, and they do not know why people don't come to that. Like, why, why, I know we have a prayer meeting at the church, and people don't come. It's like, and I mean, th- most churches, the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting at the whole church. I think that's true of this church, right? You have, you know, we have, we cook, we cook pork and put it in potatoes, and we'll get 370 to 950 people at that. But you say, hey, let's get together and pray. And people are like, yeah, we should do that. You tell me how that goes, right? <laughs> and I always thought, you know, I would love to be that guy. Because that's real spirituality, right? When you're like the prayer warrior. So I always wanted to be that guy that's like, you know, praying up a storm. You know, and you just try to be that guy when you have ADD and narcolepsy. I mean, it's not, it's not a walk in the park, you know? You get nine prayer times in a day because you start praying, you fall asleep, you wake up, you pray a little more. You fall asleep, you wake up. Right? I mean, like, I have to pray, like, when I'm driving or riding a bike or, like, kneeling, kneeling beside your bed, that does not work for me. Okay? But in some sense, I think, if you frame it the right way, not liking prayer is one of the most rational human emotions. Let me explain explain why I think that. Because if you know what you're actually doing, what are you actually doing? You believe that God is omniscient. He knows knows all things. And when you intentionally go and you speak to him, you know that immediately God is psychologically and consciously aware that you're talking to him. So whether or not you feel anything or see anything in prayer, which most people don't, right? You are coming into the presence of Almighty God. If that does not make you feel uncomfortable, I don't know what to tell you. You might not know a darn thing about what God is. Right? I mean, it's pretty uncomfortable to go into the presence of somebody who knows everything about you. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever wanted or wanted to do, every, every unjust, unthankful thought, everything that's wrong with you. Now you might go, but Nick— Aren't we covered by the sacrifice of Jesus? Christ died on our behalf. We're clothed in his righteousness. We're adopted as God's sons. Absolutely. And, and that's where we end up. But, you know, I'm still not very good at being his son. And if I was my spiritual dad, I'd be pretty disappointed in me. And even though I believe very strongly that God loves me passionately, when I go to prayer, it's very hard to not start out with, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Basically, everything that happened since we last talked. Now, I know where this is going. I know my heavenly—he doesn't have to talk to me in prayer. I know where this goes, because then I can revel in—and so I can confess and I can repent— because I know that's good for me. I know that's right. I know, and, but then I can, then I can, where does that move to for a Christian? For a Christian, what that moves to is thankfulness. It moves to, oh, thank you for the cross. Thank you that Christ's death applies to me, that, that I am not standing here in my own righteousness, but there's a foreign, gracious righteousness of Christ that's put on me that I have before you, and I'm adopted on, on, on behalf of that, not on my own goodness to be your adopted son and my, my, my the presence of your spirit is not on the basis of my righteousness but on Christ's righteousness and then I can emotionally revel in that and that's wonderful but and it's also it also doesn't get better like you might think well you know Nick I just started coming to church but I figure like in 20 years like I'm not gonna feel that way no that's not really how it works the more advanced the Christian the more recognition they have of their sinfulness 
Do they clean up the most, some of the most drastic sins that create the biggest problems in their life? Yeah, but that's not because those sins are the most wicked. Those ones just create the most immediate problems. The, the, creating sin that creates problems and sins and the level of sin's actual wickedness are not necessarily at all related. Some of the most greatest idolatrous offense against God Almighty may actually make your life go better. But what, what happens is the longer you walk with God, yeah, d- just do, you, do you repent of certain things and get free of things? Absolutely. But then what happens? God lets you in on more stuff. The secret sins from Psalm 19? Yeah, they're secret then. But clean this thing up and we move on. And what is a loving, fatherly spirit going to do? He's going to say, okay, so that was great. I'm so glad you responded to the last thing we were talking about. And that's really cool. I'm so glad that we're by that for the moment. So I got four more things we need to talk about. That's kind of how it goes. For your whole life, all of life is repentance. Right? But prayer is so important because one, you're coming into the presence of that God. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable. It's supposed to make you feel like you should say you're sorry. But it should be, there's a certain kind of apology where you're very, you're very humbled in doing it, but you know the result before you start apologizing. You remember I talked about this a couple weeks ago? Where are you the kind of person that when somebody apologizes to you, they already know what the outcome is going to be. You're going to forgive them. You're just that kind of person. And they're going to apologize to you, and, but it's not crushing to them. It's humiliating, but not crushing because they know it's important that they say, say reality. This is what happened. This is what I did. But they know who's on the other side of that apology. The one who says, thank you for saying that. Now come here. That's very important. And that's what, that's what Christian repentance is like. That is the, he, God is the one who's on the other side of that. But the action is extremely important. And listen, now you might be like, Nick, you said you were going to make us do like lots more stuff. Okay, listen. Let's start, with, let's start with five minutes a day. The first minute when you wake up, one before three meals, and right before you go to bed, one minute of praying. Your conscience, you haven't even opened your eyes yet. God, thank you for this day that I'm alive, that I'm probably going to be able to get out of this bed. Thank you that you have something for me to do today. There's going to be people in my life I'm supposed to love. I have, there's some kind of work that I'm going to do that I'm either going to find for myself or that I have to do. I'm going to, I'm going to try to live this day for your glory and not my own glory because you're the one who deserves it. And I'm going to live out of thankfulness and joy in you because of what Christ has done for me. Now, how long did that take? Just under, I mean, that's under a minute, right? That's it, right? Totally changes your day. Seven minutes later, when you get down to sit for breakfast, you already have something to say you're sorry about, right? God, I'm so, since we last talked, I just, whew, you know? But just, and part of prayer is repentance, but there's another thing that's equally important, and that is thankfulness. When I was in college, um, I was at SUNY Oswego, which is basically kind of like, you know, going to Eau Claire or whatever um, in Wisconsin. And uh, one of my buddies there was a guy named Vladimir Joseph. He was a 6'2", really black Haitian guy. And we were always together, so people called us the brothers. And it was so much fun playing basketball with him. And so we would, we would have these prayer meetings, but he came to faith. I came to faith at, like, this church in upstate New York. He came to faith um, at Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Brooklyn Tabernacle, but this is a church planted by a guy named Jim Simbla, and they, he and his wife were dealing with this question, how do you do spirituality in a place where the vast majority of people we're going to minister to are poor, they've never known their father, they haven't, don't feel like they've had hardly any opportunities in life. Most of them have been abused in some way pretty badly. How do you minister the good news of Jesus to them when they probably feel like they have everything to accuse God about? And they realized there was, here's how they were going to do it. They were going to pray, and they were going to mostly pray by saying thank you to God. That's what they were going to do. You go to, you go to a prayer meeting at Brooklyn Tabernacle, you will just hear thankfulness. Constant. Now, part of that, it's missionally really wise because you've got a complaining city and you've got a group of people that are thankful. It's beautiful. But functionally, it's necessary. See, because here's, here's what draws us away from God so powerfully. 
where we figure everything good in our life is our doing and everything bad in our life God should have prevented. What kind of heart does that produce? It produces the exact same heart whether you're religious or irreligious, doesn't it? You can be a skeptic and an atheist and you can believe that everything good in your life you've produced and everything bad in your life, if God existed, he should have prevented and therefore God doesn't exist. Or you can be the religious guy who believes that you're righteous and you've done this by your own effort and you do the right things and you work hard and you've already made the right choices and God should have blessed you more than he has and a bunch of the stuff that happened to you, you don't deserve. Right? It's just the story of the prodigal son, right? Luke chapter 15. You can read it this afternoon. You have to get out of the place where you believe that, where you believe that everything good in your life is you're doing, everything bad in your life, God should have stopped. And you've got to get to the place where everything good in your life is from God's hand, and everything bad in your life could have come into your life for a hundred different reasons. And one of those reasons is that you screwed up, possibly. Or, but and there's lots of other reasons. And yes, God is sovereign over those things. But when you start praying with thank you, God, it, it changes your perspective. When Vladimir and I would pray, we'd have these like, like, like two-hour prayer meetings, right? There's like four of us. He always insisted on holding hands. So we're sitting around this like uncomfortable table in one of these like, you know, like drywall fluorescent lights places. He grabs our hands and he just starts praying. And it's just thank you, God. It's like, like no kidding for 45 minutes every Tuesday. Right? Before lunch. And it's just, it was just maddening. But you know what? It left a mark on me. I don't know if I'll ever forget. You sit there and you praise God. You just, you just exhibit, and you can't just think it. You can't, you need to say it. You've got to do it. You have to do the behavior. The, the good intention has to come out. You have to make it come out of your mouth. You, you listen for that in your life. That when you, you feel something, you kind of think it in here, but you can't get yourself to say it. Whenever that happens, you take that as a crossroads for you. You make that come out of your mouth. No matter how stupid you feel, no matter how hokey you feel, no matter how dumb you feel, no matter how much you think people are going to think you're an idiot, you've got to make it come out of your mouth because you are becoming someone in that moment. Why, why would the Bible say, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus raised him from the dead, and then say, go be baptized and get dunked in water to show that you believe in Christ's death and resurrection for you. Why are the actions demanded? But not necessarily to be saved. You have to confess with your mouth to be saved. But baptism isn't contingent on salvation, so why is baptism required? Because you have to do it. Right? And so when we pray, do it, start with just a minute. But you can think about how you can redeem your commute. How you can redeem any moment where you get angry. Just say, anytime anybody makes me angry or I get angry, that's prayer time. Right? You can have these triggers where you don't say, well, I'm going to pray 50 minutes a day. Well, good luck with that. But sometimes it's better to just have triggers. When so-and-so makes me really, really mad— that's going to be, I'm going to, that's prayer time. Or every time I sit down to eat, one minute. I'm not going to do this like, God, please bless my hamburger. What does that even mean? <laughs> your, your hamburger is already dead. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the meat inspector says, hopefully, that's funny. <laughs> right? Why not take a minute to be—why th- do we say grace? Think about it, right? You say grace. See what that means? You say it, and what are you saying? That what you receive, you receive, bec- that you have no claim on, it's freely given. Right? God, you didn't have to give me any of this, but here it is right in front of me for me to enjoy and to eat in 1 Corinthians, it says to eat, we should eat and drink for the glory of God. And remember that? Sir, that's a year ago now, right? You probably don't remember that. The context is thankfulness. What does it mean to eat and drink for the glory of God? In that context, it's to eat and, eat and drink thankfully. If you pray for five minutes a day, and you pray repentantly, knowing the God whose presence you've just come into, and you pray thankfully, it'll start to change you. It will change you.
And if you don't do that, it will have an enormous effect on how little you can change. Because that, being willing to get right into the presence of God, right there, face to face, psychologically speaking, and to speak the truth about yourself, and to speak the truth about God, and to invert your normal unthankfulness and pride, that is the most important event that can happen in your spiritual life. Once you cross the line of believing in Jesus. It doesn't take a lot of time. Third is reconciliation. That is forgiving and seeking forgiveness. How much time does this take to say, okay, last night we had that fight, I was an idiot. You don't have to say you were too. Right? It's when you become the kind of person that restores and redeems. Why? Because who, whose fundamental character— Okay, this is obviously not a very good question, but it's not—it's a sermon. It's not participatory, right? Who is the one whose character is to seek to redeem and restore relationships? Jesus, right? And so when you seek to live a life of redeeming and restoring relationships, who are you becoming like? Say it with me. Jesus, right? All three of you. Yeah. And so when you—see, that's not a spiritual—that's not like an, oh, go pray more, or read the Bible for 75 minutes a day, or, or like, it's, it's not, you know, do these spiritual push-ups or fast for 97 days. It's not any of those things, Right? This doesn't take extra time to go to your coworker and say, you know what, in that meeting yesterday, when I said that thing, I was thinking about it, it must have been so clear to you that I didn't listen to a word you said. Because you said something, and then I free associated on something to say something I was already thinking I was just waiting for you to shut up so I could say it. And I realized how disrespectful that is towards you. I should have been listening to you. I should have believed that you might say something that would help me, and I'm sorry that I did that. And I'm going to try to do better. How long does that take? Not very long. That person can't fire you. Right? Horizontal repentance is easier. But what does that do? Does that humiliate you? Yes, it does a little bit. Which is really good for you and me, isn't it? It honestly, like, it humiliates you, but you feel a lot better right afterwards. Even if they don't like you. Even if they're like, yeah, you're a jerk. You're kind of like— yeah, but you know what? That's over. You can be mad about it, but it's over for me. I told the truth. It is what it is. I can't take it back. I'm going to try to do better in the future. Right? But here's what you get. In the vast majority of cases, you get relationship just like that. You go and you really apologize to somebody, or you seek to get their forgiveness, or you offer forgiveness— and most of the time, you res- there's something emo- relationally that happens right away. And the humiliation that you pay up front is an investment for humility you get on the backside. The humility payoff for real repentance is the most valuable spiritual commodity that there is. Humility is always your best friend because humility before God is always reality. And so being a person of disciplined reconciliation, going and seeking to be forgiven by repenting to real human beings, and by going and forgiving, telling somebody that you let it go, is incredibly important. And it's not extra time. It's what, it's what we should be doing with our life in moments anyway. And, it's been, and you actually save time, because then what are you not doing? Sitting around brooding whether or not you should be repenting. Being angry about whatever. Listen, I'll tell you what. I was listening to this book the other day. Your brain, okay? Your brain. 4% of your body mass, what percent of your energy used each day? 20%. Right? All that crazy stuff going on in your head is sapping you dead. And you don't have to pay that price. Okay? Now listen, that's not why you repent. If you repent for that reason, you're not going to be any better off. You have to repent because repentance is the truth. You have to forgive because forgiveness is the truth. You've got to seek to receive forgiveness because that's what restoration and redemption is about because Jesus is King and Lord. He is the King that God has installed on His holy hill and in His holy city. Because that is the way of blessing and not scoffing and cursing. You've got to do it for that reason. You do the, wrong, you do the right thing for the wrong reason, you never get the godly payoff. You never get blessing. You might get some kind of success, but you never get blessing. Blessing always comes through doing the right thing for the right reason. 
Fourth is knowing God. If you're not a little uncomfortable when you go to pray, you don't know who you're talking to. How are you going to grow into the image of one, the one you don't know who you're talking to? This is why we come to church. This is why we have substantive sermons. This is why we have Bibles to read, translated in the best translations we can possibly manage. This is why we have small groups where we talk about the content of the sermon and the biblical passage we talked about. This is why we have studies. This is why we have sermons online. This is why anything we do to try to learn about God, why do we do it? Because who God is has to be the driver for all this. I was having a conversation. Lisa, uh, Lisa always comes into my office um, in the morning to say, hey, is there anything I can help with? And um, usually the answer is no, I'm just totally, like, disorganized. You can't help me. But one of the things, um, th- this morning she's like, well, let me tell you this. Because um, earlier in the year, the elders decided that we wanted to invite a few of our staff members to take a graduate-level theology class at the Trinity Extension Campus. And so we, um, well, we made Derek take it, and we invited Lisa to take the Theology One class, right? Which is a gra- it's graduate-level work. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hard work. You know, you, and it's on weekends. So they had to give up three or four weekends, plus all the reading they had to do, in a, in, which is a couple thousand pages, in addition to everything that they're doing. But the elders said, listen, if you take these classes, we'll pay for it. Because we want to invest in our young, especially our younger staff, we want to pay dividends their whole life. And so she said, I want you to know that I, fi- I finished one of the, the second book we had to read. It was so helpful. She said, and I, I wrote this email with somebody, and I was writing this email, and I realized I had so much more to draw from. I just learned so much. And so when I'm writing this email about the gospel, I realized that I could talk about things and I could make connections and I could just say things that I could never have said three months ago. And so I just want to say thank you for, for to the, you and the elders for investing in me, right? It's, now listen, that, there's more ways than taking graduate courses, right? Reading the Bible, actually listening to sermons, being in a small group that's going to discuss the biblical passage and the sermon content to try to work it in. To yourself and help others understand it with each other. All those things matter. You're being formed into the—the the whole point of Christianity is for you and I to be formed into the image of Christ. You've got to know Christ to be like him. You can't imitate someone you don't know. Okay, we're going to have to go fast to the other ones. Fifth is ritual repetition. Most people don't like the word ritual. Most people hear the word ritual, and if, if you held up a card and said, okay, I'm going to hold up a card, it's going to have a word on it, and then you say the first word that comes into your mind. Ready? Ritual. Snore. Right? Um, I, I grew up in a church as a kid that was a, a very ritual-based church, but, um, and so I kind of had this break with the, like, no, we're going to be freewheeling, you know, and obviously I pastor kind of a whatever church. Anyway. But here's, here's, what, here's the definition of ritual, okay? You're, you ready? Here's the definition of ritual. A ritual is something that you do to focus your attention on something worthwhile and to eliminate distractions so that you can. A ritual is some kind of practice that you do to focus your attention on something worthwhile and to eliminate the distractions so that you can. Now, if that's what a ritual is, are rituals good things? Right? Well, if they do that, then yes, right? You see, the issue isn't ritual is good, ritual is bad. The issue is, this is what a ritual is. Does, it, does this particular ritual help? Right? So, it's one of the things we're like, well, I don't like rituals, and I don't like organized religion, right? Okay, thank you, you're a snob. Okay, but, but if you say, okay, well, what ritual— my question is always, what ritual are we talking about? Do you know what a ritual is for? Are you using it right? Right? Like, you can't use a bottle opener to saute an egg. Like, you got, you got to know what you're doing, right? So we have communion. You're like, dude, that little snack you had in the middle of church, like, that didn't do it for me. Like, it didn't take the edge off. And you're like, okay, that's not what it is. It's not a snack, right? Like, if you think, if you don't know what you're doing, it's not going to work, right? You have to know what you're doing. What is it we're doing here, right? So you might have some ritual when you pray, Right? So, like, I have a really hard time paying attention, right? I have ADD. So I have more rituals in prayer than I have in anything else in my life. So for, uh, for a number of years when I was in Florida particularly, um, my prayer time, I had a little oil lamp that I would light. And I would be like, okay, the Holy Spirit, when I 
seek to go into God's presence, God's presence is here. The Holy Spirit is going to be here ministering to me. So I'd like that, and I would think about that. And then I had this little rosary that I'd gotten in the Holy Land, and I actually broke some of the little beads off it because I didn't want it to actually be a rosary, because I was going to pray the rosary. But I used it, all, I, I gave a signification to every bead so I could work through what I wanted to pray about. So it started with the cross. So I would start with the cross. I'd thank God for the cross. I'd repent. I'd receive his forgiveness on the basis of the cross. I started with the cross. And then it was one bead, three beads, and one bead. So I would go, I would start with, you know, Alexi. I had three kids at the time. Boom, boom, boom. Like, and I would use that. And then the, the first group was with this, my staff. And I'd pray for each of my staff individually. And I'd work all the way through that. And that helped me. Help me to have something in my hands. Help me to be in that place in the room. Help me to light that little fire. Like, that's all rituals. But it helped me focus on something worth focusing on and eliminating distractions. The Lord's Supper is like that. Baptism is like that, right? There's something very sensate about water, right? Get, you don't get dunked underwater by people very often. It feels like you could die, right? You get held under there long enough, you'll drown. You know that. And your body naturally has a feeling associated with it. That's all helpful. You're supposed to be experiencing the spirituality of death and resurrection. That's, that's why, listen, I don't, listen, I don't believe you have to be immersed in baptism to be, like, to be saved. Like, I'm not, I'm not so wedded to immersion that, like, we're all, we're going to shoot all the Christians that don't dunk people. But why do, why do we, why do we at High Point insist on it as the motive we're going to baptize you unless there's something like you can't get out of a hospital bed or something like that? Why? Because of the imagery that goes with the ritual. We believe it's really important. So we do it. Same thing with communion. Same thing with every ritual we do. So when we do like a quiet time, reading the Bible and praying, right? What do you do? Well, it's good to do the same thing every day in the same place. For some people, be like, I always have my—like some people will do it if they're, if they're so modern. I always have my cup of coffee, and then I have my little spiral notebook, and then I have my Bible, and I read it. And, and I'm just kind of like, okay, Nick, don't make fun of them because it works for them. Just don't make fun of them. It's, it's not ashtray water. Like, because, listen, because it's actually good. Because that little cup of coffee, it helps them focus. Like, they, they like it. It's a, it's, a air, it's a space they've created. Right? Why is there coffee there? Why is it in that room? Why is it with that chair? Because it's creating a space where they've trained themselves. When they sit there, this is what they focus on. This is what's happening. And so in that sense, you can build your own ritual, and you can decide what rituals you want to use, which ones you shouldn't use, because here's what a ritual is. It's something that helps you focus on something worth focusing on, and it helps you eliminate distractions. Think about why we do musical worship. Why do we do musical worship, right? We're using poetry and music. They're both, they're both forms of art. Art is meant to engage the senses, and we do it lyrically, right? So we're singing words. So we're, we're, we're dealing with truths— because they're expressed in words, in poetry that's meant to enliven the emotion, and we're making ourselves sing it, usually standing, and we do things with our posture, and we sing it out. Why? Because we're engaging our will with our emotions, with our minds, all together in an action. We're making ourselves do it. That's why the more you dislike the singing, the more you need to do it. The more you just like singing, the less it's doing for you, frankly. It's still worship. It's still wonderful. Do it. It's great. But the discipline is important for all of us. And that's why you see some people being weird. Like, you might go to church. This church is in town. They wave flags. They do—you like the voice crack? They wave flags. They tambourines. They, like, run down the aisles. You don't need to judge those people. They're, they're, they're trying to do something in musical worship that helps them focus on something worth— Why do people go like this? Or like this? When they sing. Why do they do that? It's a physical action designed to go along with what they're doing with their heart and mind because they're trying to be a whole person, right? Now, it's totally okay to sing like this. That's okay. It's fine. But there's some people that say, God, I give my whole life to you. There's some people that want to go like this. Why is that weird? It's not weird. You might think it's weird. It's fine. But you see, like, and listen, you know, I need to judge you if you don't do it. You need to judge me if I do it. The point of the ritual is to focus on something, to engage in it with mind, heart, and body, to do it in a way that will affect us holistically to become the person we're meant to be. Yeah, there could be like a sermon on each one of these, I know. Um, six is being together. Being together. You become like who you're around. Make no mistake about it. 
You become most, this is a Tim Keller quote, you become most like who you eat with. And fellowship, or what we sometimes now call community because we think it's sexier, um, is incredibly important in Christian development. And that doesn't mean that you are in the general spatial vicinity of other people who claim to be Christians. That's not what fellowship is. Fellowship is when you are specifically in direct relationship with someone for whom Jesus is the basis of your relationship and a large bit of the basis of your relating. So that when you have a conversation with that person, you have a spiritual friendship, you are actually talking about your sin, Jesus' greatness, what you learned out of Scripture, how you want to live your life for God. That's what we're talking about. If you're, if you're here and you don't talk to anybody, you're like, I was at fellowship today. No, you are. You are in the basic space, spatial vicinity of other people who claim to be Christians. That is not the same thing as fellowship. It's not the same thing as communing with others for a direct and clear spiritual purpose that you and I want to become more like Jesus. We are screw-ups trying to be more like the perfect king serving a God who loves us incredibly and who requires only one thing, that we would just be humble. And he will do the work of transforming if we'll just go along with it a little bit. And it happens to you more and more if you're just together with people who are on that track. And the more you're with people who are not on that track, don't kid yourself that you're this independent, self-formed, blah, 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 blah. We need to be out in the world. We need to be around people who aren't Christians. We need to love people. We need to have good and even close relationships with non-Christians. But don't kid yourself. You become like who you're around, and especially the people you eat with. You'll become like the—and the more spiritual, the more deep, the more psychological, the more personal the relationship, the more and the faster you'll become like that person. The last is leverage life. There was—I um, had a buddy, David Whited, who's a pastor in downtown Chicago— Went to seminary together. He grew up in Little Rock, or Hot Springs, Arkansas. And uh, his pastor had a saying. Because so, he was the youth pastor. And um, sometimes there'd be somebody in the church. Something would happen in their life. And they would handle that thing in a relatively not Jesus-centered way. Okay? And, you know, people do that. Something happens and they solve the problem. And it's really not what God wanted them to do. And his saying was, he'll get to take that test again. Because life is its own spiritual discipline, and it's actually one of the most effective spiritual disciplines. It's one of the reasons why you don't have to be church every minute to grow in Christ. Are you only growing in Jesus when you're right here? No. This is where we do drills. This is where we do training. This is practice. This isn't the, this isn't the gig. I mean, when we worship Jesus in church, it is the gig. We're worshiping Jesus. That's real. But wh- where are you most becoming a Christian? You do training, and you come to practice here, and then you go out to game day, and you play ball out there. And so if you begin to think about your whole life as every moment you're becoming more like Jesus or not, you've got these, there are all, there's constantly these decisions before you, and you're either moving more towards Jesus or away. You're always being formed. What you'll realize is you are constantly going through the process of spiritual formation. You're wasting your company's time or you're trying to work hard for them. You're listening to the person who's talking to you or you're not listening to the person who's talking to you. You're wasting time. You're redeeming time. You're talking to somebody like they're created in the image of God. You're talking about somebody to your coworkers like they're not created in the image of God. Every moment, every action, every decision is either forming or deforming your soul. And if you begin to look at your whole life like that, what you'll see is you're constantly engaging in spiritual disciplines if you're engaging in spiritual discipline. And in that sense, you can spend no extra time doing Christian stuff and be growing immensely. This last week, in case you want to know where I was on my vacation, I went on a hunting trip for ducks and geese to North Dakota, which is a hunting trip that depended on a migration that hasn't happened. We mostly sat around and ate. But... Um, one of the things I did this summer is I shot clays, right? This is how, this is how you practice to be a shotgunner. They fling these little clays and you, you try to shoot them, right? Because it's a moving target in the air. But it's not like real life because the clays do not do defensive maneuvers. And the longer they fly through the air, the more they slow down. Whereas with birds, the more they fly through the air, the faster they go. So it's not really the same thing. But if you try to go out into the field with a shotgun, never having shot it, and birds start flying up and you start shooting at them, you know, you're, you know, you're just scaring birds is all you're doing. Okay? you got to shoot clays if you really want to get better at it. But it doesn't make a hunter out of you. 
For that, you got to go on the hunting trip. Because shooting at a clay and shooting at blue-winged teal, that when they come in and you stand up, they go like this, is totally different. You have to do the practice, but you become a hunter in real life when you go on the hunt. And Christianity is the same way. You believe in Jesus. You become his. You come to church. You go to small group. You do these things. You go through the training. You learn, what, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to think this? And then, and then you go play the game. You go out into real life, and then you act. So you can sit in a small group till the cows come home and say, I'm supposed to love other people. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? You haven't done squat until you love Bill or Eric or Sarah or Alice or whatever. You become a believer. You become like Jesus in the game. And when you start thinking your whole life like that, all of life is a spiritual discipline if you're spiritually disciplined. If you see that, do you see how you don't, you're not adding anything? You see that? All seven of those things were spiritual disciplines. It's all spiritual discipline. It's all seeking to be really formed to be like Christ, adding the convictions that come from the gospel to real behavior so that we can be formed into a character that images and mirrors Christ, not so that we can win, but for his glory, so people can see God for who he is. And we can experience God for who he is, and we can enjoy that forever. But listen, they're still real. You still have to embrace it. You still have to commit yourself to it. You still have to seek to live it out. It won't take you a lot of extra time. So quit using time as an excuse because it's not one. And go to the one who all he wants to start with, all he wants is a broken and contrite heart. Somebody who knows that all of life is repentance. Somebody who's willing to come to him. We're going to do musical worship. Will you do it like you just heard this sermon and respond? Use all your faculties Give yourself to the truth of what's said. Sing with all your heart and soul and mind. Do whatever you want with your hands, body, and posture that you think will add into the truth of what you're singing. And even when we give, we're going to have the offering first. Um, giving is a spiritual discipline too. There's no one more gener- generous than Jesus. And when we give, we're, we're, we're giving— we're giving, we're giving to God in worship. We're giving for the purposes of the ministry. But make no mistake, it's a spiritual discipline of generosity. So as um, I'm going to pray that they're going to come and take the offering. If you're a visitor, we'd love to get that visitor card from you that's in the pew rack in front of you. You shouldn't feel obligated to give. But if Jesus is your Lord and this is your church, then this is an opportunity for worship and spiritual discipline. Let's pray. Father, um, Please help us to use the next few minutes as we sing these three or four songs and as we give and as we try to try to engage with the disciplines that will help us become what we've believed and to be what you've declared us to be in Christ. We want to experience and be what you've declared us to be. We want to act like your sons and daughters. We want to feel like your sons and daughters. We want to think like your sons and daughters. We want your purposes to be our purposes, your glory to be our great affection your truth to grip our hearts and our conscience and our convictions. And we want, it, we want it to flow out of a trusting humility, a real repentant heart. We don't want to be irreligious or self-righteous, but we want to trust in you who, are, who is our refuge. Help us to do this now in Jesus' name. Amen.